Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. And each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? So welcome, friends of the Soul Kitchen. Welcome to a new episode. I am in uh, Brazil at the moment, Salvador de Bahia. I celebrated Carnival last week because a friend of mine from the Netherlands has a Brazilian girlfriend and uh, they were on a tour in Brazil and I could join. So it's a special place for me to interview uh, Johnny Miller. And Johnny is a podcast host of Curious Humans. And he's also a founder of the Nervous System Mastery. Do I spell that correct, uh, Johnny? That is correct. Yes. Thank you, Jasper. That is correct. And um, a friend of mine introduced me to Johnny because he's following Johnny and his newsletter. And it's the first time that I'm actually uh, uh, interviewing a former, uh, let's say, a fellow podcast host. So, yeah, Johnny, um, welcome to the to the episode. How are you doing today? It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's currently like minus 15 degrees outside. So it's it's pretty cold. We had a snowstorm here in Boulder overnight. Um, I'm here with my three-month-old puppy, Lola. <laughs> She's a bundle of joy. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. And um, I'm curious, um, you decided to become a podcast host, but uh, mm. typically that doesn't happen maybe in one second. Like, what was your process towards becoming a podcast host? Mm. Yeah, it feels like a, a while ago now. Um I I've always loved listening to podcasts. I got a huge amount from podcasts like On Being in particular was one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And, ju- and just like the the art of asking great questions. And I think there's something that's that's almost like more intimate about audio than than video at, at times. Um and so I and, and I was also going through a phase where I was like searching and doing a lot of seeking. And so for me, the podcast was both a great way for me to like experiment and play and have fun conversations, but also like like talk to people that I wouldn't normally get a chance to meet, like authors, um, people that I really admired, people that I respected, and almost get like like free advice, like free coaching conversations <laughs> at yeah. times. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, I, I remember, I think I procrastinated for about six to eight months before actually recording the first conversation like it took me a long time to like build up the the courage i guess to to do that um but i i loved it i mean for me it's almost like it's it can be a form of like a meditation in some ways like where you just you kind of enter this slipstream together in conversation and you, and you say things that you didn't even know that you thought and it just becomes this beautiful yeah this beautiful flow so i i really really enjoyed it it's probably been the most rewarding like side project that i've started in my life mm. um, and i intend to do it for you know hopefully 10 20 more years we'll see yeah. i i do agree is you never know what's going to to show up i have a mm-hmm. similar experience and um 
you invite people that are curious humans. And if you now reflect on everything you've done so far and the people you've spoken with, how would you kind of summarize what you learned from all those conversations? Mm, I don't think I could. <laughs> is the answer. Um, I think I can, the, the looking back, the threads of the conversations make more sense. I think in the beginning I was, I was interested in curiosity itself and like unpacking the spirit of curiosity, what gets in the way, how it leads to creativity um, and the different types of curiosity. And I think as it progressed and as I've progressed as a, as a human and host, um, it's, it's translated more to like internal curiosity. So getting curious about our inner landscapes, about how we function as humans, about how to become a, a more mature adult, more mature human being. Um, and that's kind of the direction it's, it's going, but it's still evolving. And what, I mean, what I love about Curious Humans is it's like, it's a, an outlet for me to just get in touch with people who I think have big ideas to share and have this like lens of wonder on the world in, in many cases. Uh, I think, I mean, I listened to your teaser of your podcast and I think you said something that curiosity also has to do with following your curiosities without being sure about what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I like a lot, you know, with a new podcast or a new startup or a new world trip. Yeah, you never know what you get out of it, but it gives me a lot of energy. But at mm -hmm. the same time, sometimes I notice a bit resistance maybe from other people or then other people try to put my experience in a certain box, you know, like what's the goal or what's the outcome. Mm -hmm. um, can you share a bit of your experience about knowing the outcome or not knowing the outcome? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think one of the challenges is we live in a world where productivity is rewarded. And so, you know, usually if you want to get something done, knowing what the outcome is, is very helpful. Whereas if you're just following curiosity for the sake of itself, it might not lead anywhere or, it, you know, it might lead to a dead end. And I think there's always a, a risk or a kind of opportunity cost entailed in that. Um, so I think that a lot of it is, is actually like unlearning in some ways, unlearning what we, the habits we picked up at school where we were rewarded for giving correct answers instead of learning how to ask interesting questions. Whereas I think, and it's interesting now with, with AI coming online and this whole, like there's a field of like prompt engineering is now like, a, it's a new field. And it's like, how do you ask good questions? Because the AI robots are now giving all of the answers, but it's like us as humans, we have to be able to ask good, interesting questions. And so I think that's, um, and that's been part of my journey with the podcast has been, you know, how do you ask good questions? What elicits um interesting novel answers and, and stories um and, and then i think also just having a experiment based mindset so kind of having some kind of hypothesis you, you know you do this with startups like you have a thesis of some sorts then you you create like an mvp you create a test you create a prototype or a demo like does it work does it do people like it and then if yes you iterate if no then you kind of start again and i think it's it's similar and for me, the the curiosity or like the aliveness, like how excited do I feel about this thing? How like expansive do I feel in my body? Am I like pulled into this this conversation or this project or this direction? 
And often I will be, but I don't even know rationally why. But I'm learning to trust that, like, that impulse towards that. I've done that enough times that it's almost always led me to more interesting places than I could have, like, planned in the beginning, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the word productivity, that productivity is being valued in society. And do you specifically mean being productive in financial sense or, or is there another type of productivity? What do you mean with that word? There are many types of productivity. I think it boils down to like um, usefulness. I, I mean, a typical measure is like in a financial sense, like is this going to generate money for me or the company? Um, but it's also, I mean, productive is, is like usefulness is maybe a, another way of putting it, um, or like like how much output is being created. And, and what's ironic is a lot of the biggest breakthroughs, the you know, like the, the real innovations, were the result of usually play. Stephen Johnson has a great book about this, where a lot of the innovations that we you know, take for granted today begun with people tinkling around people having fun people making games and that then turning into something useful but that wasn't the the initial impulse mm, i see so productivity can be financial sense but it can also about usefulness mm -hmm. and and curiosity the the people that you have uh, uh interviewed um How do you select those people? Do you have, let's say, criteria for if someone is a curious human or is that your own intuition that you follow? Yeah, I mean, it would be ironic if like, I don't know, I, I follow my own curiosity, honestly. It's like, if I read a book that really lights me up, I'm like, well, I'm just going to reach out to the author. And they won't always say yes. In fact, a lot of the time they, they don't. But the ones that do, you know, end up being a great conversation. Yeah, I, I think my filter is, I won't have a conversation on there unless I'm like genuinely interested in hearing what they want to say because I feel like that would defeat the point. Yeah. So you follow your curiosity so there's no rigid uh, rigid no. scheme. Mm -hmm. And can you give an example of some of your podcast guests how an initial curiosity uh, led them to some point that kind of stayed with you? Um, could you rephrase the question slightly? What do you mean? Yeah. So maybe... Um, uh initial earlier you said some projects start with a curiosity and then mm -hmm. later it turns into something that is maybe useful for other people mm -hmm. can you share an example of someone that you have interviewed that started mm -hmm. with a certain curiosity and later it suddenly became a movement or became a project or became a book mm -hmm. yeah um I mean, one really early guest who comes to mind, it was a guy called Fergal Smith, who was a, a big wave surfer. And he um, he was interested in permaculture and he was just like growing things on the side. And the more that he did that, the more that he found himself enjoying it. And he ended up starting this <clears throat> permaculture farm, an intentional community in Ireland that I went to visit called Moyhill Farm. And that's now his, like, his life is like kind of building this this community and this farm but it, it begun from this this yeah idea um let me think if there's any other ones uh bill plotkin also comes to mind um he is a a wilderness vision quest guide that i interviewed mm -hmm. and, and his initial seed of curiosity was just wanting to spend more time outdoors in the wild and 
guiding people through these rites of passage and he was you know, curious like what what are the conditions that need to be in place in order to guide people through these these vision quests as he called them and that, that took him like 40 years you know and he's now re written a book about it recently but again it's like i think everyone has a seed of some sort or yeah. spark that's a beautiful serendipity because in the uh, second episode i interviewed uh, tucker walsh and he's now <laughs> specializing in transformation and transformation communities and he's researching all transformation communities worldwide and he mentioned the NMS Institute that I think was founded by Bill Plotkin. Oh yeah, so, it was. Yeah, yeah and I was checking out his website and 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 the book oh. with the Soul Quest. Um, yeah, cool. So, have you participated in uh, one of his programs or one of his quests in nature, or or you just reached out to him, or how did you get in touch with him? I um I read his his book actually three of his books <laughs> all very good. They impacted me greatly. And I did do a vision quest through a separate organization. This one was in, in Nepal. Um, but I was just so impacted by his work. And uh, his, I believe his publicist replied and said, yeah, he'd, you know, he'd love to have a conversation. And this was around the time when his most recent book was published, The Journey of Soul Descent. And so, you know, we had the, we had the conversation. <laughs> mm, that, that's really cool. Yeah. And if you look at a soul quest or a vision quest or a soul descent, um, intuitively, I understand what it means. Because also me, the past two years, I've been on this world trip where I participate mm -hmm. in community living and I'm speaking to people to yourself. And I feel I'm getting closer to what I'm supposed to do here. But it's not always easy to grasp this descent mm -hmm. to soul. But since we are in the Soul Kitchen podcast, can you share a bit how you would define it, the descent mm -hmm. to soul? And maybe also share a bit how this journey has been in your own life. Mm, yeah, I love that question. How to define a soul descent? Um, well, the, one of the images that Bill uses that I think is very appropriate is when a caterpillar kind of builds the cocoon, builds the chrysalis around itself. <clears throat> Once it's built that cocoon, it will literally dissolve into mush like the caterpillar turns into this like goopy liquid <laughs> when it's inside the cocoon before it then becomes a butterfly and the journey of soul descent <clears throat> is you know it's often incredibly challenging for people um there's often like like health crises or um you know any number of things which in my view like strip away the ego or like wear down the ego um to the point where uh, you're able to connect or contact something deeper. And Bill calls this your mythopoetic identity. So it's like the the image that is at the center of your life, which you then return, you kind of climb back up the canyon and you enact this in some way. It's like your, your unique contribution to give to the world. Um, and how I feel like this played out in my life um, yeah, I, I think I've been through one fairly major soul descent process, which for me was was grief. Uh, I was engaged to to marry an amazing woman called Sophie Spooner five and a half years ago, and she she had bipolar and she overdosed on her own medication and took her own life. Mm. And that was like the very the beginning of a very steep soul descent into into grief into like the underworld as, as bill calls it um 
And there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of richness there, like a lot of pain initially. I think, again, that's kind of normal. And depth and, and, and kind of coming, I feel like I've been emerging out of that in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, but that, that's kind of how it's shown up in my life. And I think those are the, the patterns that he you know, sees. Like usually there's some kind of like, often it is a crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And that will like really pull someone in to do into that searching, into that like deepening. And maybe there's an actual vision quest, you know, like vision quests are, are designed for people in this process to help with the um, the kind of gentle breaking down of the ego in a, in mm -hmm. a productive way. <laughs> so, so in your case, it was um, yeah the death of your your partner, and. Mm -hmm. um, uh, big grieving uh, process and um, I'm curious during that grieving process uh, we talked about functionality earlier could you still let's say function in society or was it so kind of so much that, that it kind of takes over all the other things or how did you combine the grieving with let's say daily life mm. yeah that's a good question um, I think the answer is I could have like quote unquote functioned if I had to. Um, I was in the fortunate position where I was able to take a good chunk of time away from work. So I stepped away from my my kind of job at the time, my free, my freelancing work. And and this was coming from a sense that I'd I'd met older men in particular who hadn't fully digested their grief, hadn't fully felt their grief. And it it seemed to me at least as if they were like numb or kind of almost like like a little bit lifeless on the outside. And I, I was afraid of becoming like that really. And so I, I kind of gave myself, um, really it was like a year, year and a half more or less to, um, to kind of fully feel and explore the grief. Um, mm. and, 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 you know, I could have kept working, I think if I'd, uh, like that would have been my default response would have just been, you know, like suck it up, like keep going, keep forging ahead. But it, it felt like that would have been really deeply dishonoring something. Yeah. And um, so you took time for the grieving process, which I think is a wise uh, decision. But then practically, what do you uh, do? I mean, you feel uh, things and you take time and maybe you write. But did you also go on this fishing quest then, or did you go to certain retreats, or let's say, how do you spend? How did you spend your time when you grieve? Mm. Yeah, um, a mixture of things, both writing and just you know taking time on my own to kind of be with myself. That was a big part of it. Um, I took part in a vipassana meditation retreat pretty pretty early on. Um, I then also had my first experiences with plant medicine and attended some ceremonies. Um, and I, I found myself going back to the places which were most meaningful for our relationship. So, um, and it felt like in each place there was a different aspect of something that then got to be felt through and grieved. Um, and then I, I, I ended up in Bali for quite a while, which is where I felt most nourished i think and i had a mm. kind of community around me that felt very supportive um yeah. yeah i um 
I mean, I recognize that it's good, it's good to take time out. So uh, two years ago, I started my world trip. Uh, I was living in Amsterdam. And then the first des- destination was Tanzania uh, in East Africa. And when I was three months old, uh, we moved to Tanzania because my parents were going to work there as doctors. Um, but we had a car accident uh, when I was one year and eight months old. And my dad and I survived, but my mom uh, did not survive. So in also in, in my case, it's a very specific moment of death. But I was one, so I don't remember it. And then the rest of my life, like when you're four or eight or 10, of course, it was part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never had really the time to process it. Or let's say I never intentionally took time out. Mm-hmm. But 10 years ago, we went back to Tanzania with the family, which was already a healing uh, experience to go to the place where we used to live, the accident. So that was already beautiful. But then two years ago, I had the desire to go back for a longer time. So I went back for four months. I mean, I didn't know how long I would be there, but then I went back for four months. And then we went to the place, or I went to the place where it happened. And I met some people that are from that region. They remembered the story because people that live there typically live there for multiple generations. And then there was a ceremony where they were singing for me, they were dancing, there was like a speech, and they came to me to say, Paula Salas, like, I'm sorry. Mm. But it was very healing. It was like 33 years later, but it was the first time that I had a a tangible experience with people that were actually, I don't know, coming to me uh, in in, in a ceremonial way. Of course, throughout my life, I mean, I talked about it with people, but it was, let's say, a very ceremonial activity. Mm. And um, after that... um, I uh, also quit nail biting. I mean, not, let's say, the day after, but I don't know. At some point, I quit nail biting. And um, um, yeah, so I recognized the value of ceremony activities. And mm-hmm. I also became very interested in breathwork. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I practiced breathwork and I just felt a lot and um, yeah, also cried a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not always easy to explain to other people why it's so beneficial and maybe you don't need to explain that but but that has been a bit my um, experience um but then back to you the the descent into soul you said one year one and a half year at some point did you feel the grief kind of finished or you felt the urge again to get active or how did you transition then into activity mm. yeah um yeah i, I had a I had a very intense experience um, visiting her memorial bench. I remember it felt like I fully surrendered to that particular like tidal wave of grief, and in that there was this uh, this like sense of like ecstasy. It was almost it was almost like a like a spiritual experience, and I felt so much overwhelming joy and love and connection in that moment. Um, and yeah, really from that point on, it kind of felt like I was ready to kind of emerge back into the world. And, you know, I, I'd also had some very powerful experiences in breathwork, um, mm. both through freediving and also breathwork journeys, uh, holotropic and conscious connected breathing. And I was curious to, to dive in, uh, you know, I, I'd had experiences in that that were, you know, comparable to taking psychedelics. Um, and so I ended up doing a kind of two years or more of training in, in breath work, meditation teacher training, 
Um, it, it really it, I, kind of exploring and going deeper into this in a landscape that was opened up by grief, but it wasn't just grief that was there. You know, it was like my all the emotional debt that had built up from from two decades of not really feeling as a kind of br- British emotionally repressed male. <laughs> you know, it's like there's a lot, there's a lot there. Uh, so it, it was really like embarking on that journey and both being like, wow, this is really powerful. And then starting to talk about it, starting to share it. The podcast was kind of going uh, in its early days at this point as well. Um, and just kind of experimenting and you know, doing a little bit of freelance work on the side and like trusting in the curiosity that it would yeah. lead to somewhere um, down the line. Because yeah. the breath work, uh, did you get interested after the death of your ex-partner or, or you already mm-hmm. did it before no it was it was i'd been interested in pranayama so kind of breathing practices for you know regulating nervous system but not the kind of breathwork transformational journeys that was new mm-hmm. so that, that was new and um um nowadays you have a ner- nervous system mastery uh course so at some point you transitioned from being a participant uh, towards a teacher, or at least let's say a course uh, provider. Mm. So what what is included um, uh, in this course, and why would people uh, participate? And for me, why I'm asking like breathwork, I understand because okay, I feel it's breathwork, and then meditation, I understand. But I've never heard let's say nervous system mastery. You know, it, it sounds mm-hmm. more maybe holistic or like what what is it exactly? Mm. Yeah, great question. So the the simple answer is it's like it's my attempt to distill the most useful practices and information that I learned over that kind of like five five year period. Um, I was very fortunate to be taught by incredibly smart kind of nervous system specialists in breathwork, which is actually quite rare. Learning about polyvagal theory, different somatic modalities. Um. And so what, I, what I've done with this curriculum is, for me, there's this three kind of key pieces or three pillars. The first is interoception, which is basically just our ability to like sense, track and feel our internal landscape. And mm-hmm. for me, like 10 years ago, I didn't really have much awareness internally. Like that's taken a while to cultivate. Um, the second piece are practices or protocols for self-regulation. So when you find yourself going into anxiety or anger or depression or whatever, whatever that is, knowing how to come back to, to baseline, coming back to homeostasis or ventral vagal, as it's known in the, in the theory. And then the third piece is emotional fluidity, which is our capacity to basically welcome the full spectrum of emotions and different practices that help with that and you know breath work is a great one and probably one of my favorites but there's also somatic experiencing emotional inquiry you know there's, there's a bunch of different ways that you can access that and together those three pillars over time help to create a regulated nervous system which for me is basically like living a life that is more intentional with you know more agency more choice and not living from reactivity or these like habitual patterns that come from often trauma that we experienced in the past. Mm.
So I have sometimes uh, uh, anxiety. I'm realizing more that sometimes I'm second guessing myself, and it happens sometimes after I've sent an email, or even during a podcast. For instance, in this conversation, I was like, oh, at the beginning, I still had to search a bit for where it's going. And then I can think about it, uh, even like in this conversation, oh, like how was the beginning? Because I felt when we started talking about Bill Plotkin, I was like, ah, now we go. We found like a common thing. (laughs) Um, uh, But sometimes I go back to the breath. Um, But how do you deal with anxiety, uh, second guessing, if people maybe have the same issue sometimes? Yeah, so a, a lot of the kind of common advice is, you know, like reframe it, like see see the anxiety as like you care about something, you know, reframing, like telling a different story. And that can be effective. Like it certainly is helpful. Meditation as well can be helpful. But in my experience, the, the most efficient lever for um, changing our state is through the breath. And so... Um, like a really quick one is is just doing like three sighs so like full breaths in like and then we'll just do one more yeah and that already like helps it helps to downshift the system and then you can also do things like box breathing alternate nostril breathing um, basically a practice that has an extended exhale or an exhale that is twice the length of the inhale will very quickly change our blood chemistry, which then cha- it changes our state and it changes the thoughts and feelings that we have. So rather than trying to use the mind to change the mind, it's more just changing the way we breathe, which changes our physiology and our, and our nervous system, which then yeah. helps us to feel calmer and then calmer thoughts are, arise from there. So that's, that's in, in my opinion, the most effective or efficient way of reducing the the anxiety so instead of like thinking about how you can solve it when you start thinking about it it's like then going back to the breath so you come in a different Mm -hmm. state and um i think it's 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 good advice and i use it a lot uh about traveling because sometimes things can get busy i mean for instance this week i had carnival and then i do this podcast and then this happens and then going back to the breath is really coming home mm-hmm. um, i'm also curious as an entrepreneur or as a let's say a businessman um i meet a lot of people that are into breathwork teaching and want to share this this thing mm-hmm. uh, but also now because i'm a podcast host i meet a lot of teachers but sometimes I'm wondering, are there enough students to, to fill all these uh, rooms of, let's say, the, the, the teachers, if you know what I mean? So what's your, mm. what's your feeling of, like, how many people want to do this? And mm. if there's, let's say, uh, yeah, what's your view on this? Yeah, it's funny. I do think it's the opposite problem. Um, I think there's not enough, let's say, like, um, clinically trained breathwork practitioners out there. Um, okay. And in like in my view, my opinion, practicing breathwork online doesn't really honor the nervous system. I think it's really important to have in-person connection, you know, ideally like a one-on-one container or a small group. So, you know, one practitioner for five breathers. Um, and this creates safety. It means that there can be hands-on support if something big emerges. And that, that's how I like to practice. And there's not that many 
um, I would say, yeah, clinically trained breathwork is out there, given the demand that is surfacing. And I think people are really waking up to the power of the breath and certainly the power of somatics and, you know, the limits of like talk therapy. Like you can talk about the challenges and, and traumas that you had for months or years and it doesn't really get anywhere unless you get into the body. And I think the breath is a particularly efficient and like elegant vehicle for, for doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, my, my teacher, Ed, he only runs one training a year. I, I wish that there was a way for, you know, to just like clone him and have like, like a hundred of him so that people yeah. can be trained in this way, because it, it's a little bit of a wild west and people who haven't experienced it before, it's hard to discern between someone who's just attended like a weekend workshop and says, oh, I'm a breath worker and they have a playlist versus someone who's done thousands of hours of like in-person clinical work and then is steeped in the nervous system somatics, you know, all these different um, combinations of modalities that are used. So that's, that's my sense. Mm, I see. So you think there's, there could be even more clinically, let's say trained uh, breath work facilitators. And I, I do agree. It's, uh, it, it is very popular. I did some research on uh, Google Trends on the volume of how many people look for breathwork, and it's kind of going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Whereas meditation, the past 15 or 20 years, has been a bit more stable. So for some reason, breathwork seems to be a new new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. If we go back to Bill Plotkin and the descent into soul. So you've had this transformational um, experience by losing someone. Then you had a 1 to 1.5 here. Um, I don't know more intentional grief process. You started to explore these breathwork modalities. Now you offer this course. So when came kind of the descent into the soul, when you came back, you intentionally chose some fo- something or, or this thing chose you? Mm. <laughs> mm. So some of the, the images that came through in the vision fast and in, in various ceremonies that I've taken part in, um, they've been around bringing people, bringing humans back into like retuning. Like I, I have like the image of like um, like we are like instruments, and and often we get out of tune. I think of this like the nervous system becomes out of tune, and there are ways of like retuning this, recalibrating to come back into greater alignment. And so I view my work as a breath worker and you know teaching what I'm teaching about the nervous system as like one vehicle, one outlet for helping to kind of retune people. And the the other image that I actually talked to Bill about was one of a uh, it was a warrior poet standing on the edge of a cliff holding the staff of a question, looking into oblivion. It was like looking into the void and with a with a tear in his eye. And I view the the podcast in some ways as um, both a weaving of like courageous curiosity and the willingness to to look at uncomfortable things um, and to, to kind of go into or to be willing to explore that that void like that unknown frontier and then to come back and share it with others in in various ways. Um, that 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 one's a bit more. Well, it's a lot more abstract. <laughs> and, and I, think, I, I think honestly, like I'm still living into that. You know, I'm still in that journey. I'm, I'm by no means. And I think, 
I think I understood you, but let me check. So by doing deep self-exploration and self-experimentation, and then with that wisdom, you interview others, and then you kind of share based on your own experiences, and you do it also in a way that you share your journey. You're not yet finished. Mm-hmm. But is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Part of it. And what's the other part or the part I missed? Um, <laughs> I mean, like part of this as well is it's like you're working with images and working with the imaginal. It's It can be you know, challenging to put things completely in, into words, but it's, um, how do I say it? It's, it's like, going beyond the edge of what is known and, and exploring shadows in particular and explore, you know, for me, exploring emotions, which I have not wanted to feel and which most people shy away from. And then coming back the other side with this like wisdom or, you know, with, with like, uh, with something to share. And I, I see it as, or as almost like many kind of hero's journeys where like going into the thing, whether it's like, say anger or shame and then feeling the thing or grief and feeling the thing all the way through and then coming back to the other side with greater wholeness in myself yeah because uh, you, you're talking about shadows and on your website you also mentioned uh, the word emotional uh, resilience mm-hmm. is that uh, different from the grief uh, you talked about and the uh, nervous system mastery or is it connected or what role does it play in, in, in what you offer to the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, in some ways, it's, it's talking about exactly the same thing through a lens which is more appealing to left-brained startup founders, CEOs, tech leaders. You know, like they want to they wanna cultivate emotional resilience, but they might not want to go into the grief. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's more languaging piece. I see. So it's it's more a different way of framing it, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. it has the similarity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, before you entered this descent into the soul, um, how did your life look like? I mean, I, I think you, you you were one of the founders of Maptia. Can you share a bit about, let's say, the life before? Yeah, um, I I love to travel, actually. I, I really love to travel. Um, my two, two good friends from university we started a, a travel startup called Matia, which we ran for about five and a half years. Um, so I was deep in the startup world. I then went on to teach entrepreneurship in London, uh, which is actually where I think I met our mutual friend Alita, who we talked about earlier. Um, and I, yeah, I taught entrepreneurship for for about three years. So I was kind of a teacher slash ex startup founder person. Yeah. And when you look back at your uh, uh, Maptia, I also had a travel company in the Netherlands. And at some point I saw Maptia, um, but it was about sharing stories or sharing like experiences Mm -hmm. or can you share a bit more about your vision with Maptia and how it turned out? Yeah, the vision was to create, the original tagline was the most inspirational map in the world. And the idea was to curate, um, powerful visual storytelling working with you know Nacho photographers filmmakers impact storytellers to kind of inspire people to care about the, the the world to kind of care about other cultures to care about 
the aspects of the environment that were being destroyed um, and to and to kind of share that spirit of adventure as well and, and just like that desire to like get out there and see things beyond your own postcard. And if you look back at these uh, five years as a, as a as a startup founder, when you're in the midst of it, you don't always see yet, but you get out of it, you know. Uh, but now, in hindsight, what is kind of your main lesson learned or, or teaching for your life? Hmm. That's a good question. I think I learned a lot from being in the startup world around. But there was a real spirit of like generosity in that in that space and people that like a pay it forward type culture. And um ah, good question. Embracing failure was kind of the big piece. Um <laughs> hmm. I, I mean I think I learned like a lot of practical skills around around you know business how to start a company a lot of um very useful skills that have you know served me in the path that i'm now on with creating marketing selling an online course like i think that's been invaluable um yeah and, and I, i think i also learned a lot from the stories themselves and from interacting with a lot of these amazing photographers and just to read all of these stories it was it's amazing i mean the website's still there people listening want to check it out it's matthew.com it's beautiful stories that still exist on there yeah. so the paying it forward culture the practical skills from building websites to marketing to selling mm-hmm. embracing failures and learning from the uh, the stories itself mm-hmm. i like the piece of the paying it forward because i do agree it's part, part of startup culture that i didn't think about for for a while but mm-hmm. why Did it stay with you, or why do you mention it as relevant? I think it just became part of my my worldview, like and and being drawn to people that just kind of share that mindset. Like, like I, I think Naval has a tweet around playing long long term games with long term people, and uh, I think yeah, just, just like being it also the sort of world attracted very interesting curious enthusiastic people and again like those are the people that i've tended to now still surround myself with it's just in a slightly <laughs> different context um <laughs> yeah yeah so it's it's kind of shaped your uh, your worldview in a way with the podcast you're doing it because yeah the knowledge that you you found and the interviews that you do you share with other people mm-hmm. and how have you transitioned from this Maptia starter founder towards i mean maybe you don't call yourself a startup founder but you still offer things mm-hmm. to the world as, a, as an entrepreneur as a person but how has this entire journey shaped you or, or changed in how you do things or how you approach life The, the journey from being a founder to what I'm doing now. Yeah, founder, but then you also had the grief process in the middle and, and with all the breath work, like, yeah, how has this changed things? Um, ch- like changed who I am or changed how I do things now? Maybe how you do things or how you approach things in your, your projects or in what you want to create into the world. Okay. Um yeah well i i have a, I have a good friend paul millard who 
he's, we've actually interviewed each other. <laughs> we, we both have podcasts. And uh, he talks about this idea of the pathless path. And I think that for anyone kind of like stepping away from the default mode of living, whether that's, you know, like traditional nine to five, you know, that, that whatever default means for you, I think there is like a kind of a period of flailing around of like not really knowing what you're doing. Um, it could also be like a soul descent journey. Oftentimes it is. And over time, things just start to kind of become more obvious and experiments start to work. And for me, nervous system mastery was, you know, one of many experiments that I ran. But as soon as I created the first version, there was this sense inside of me of like this, this thing has life, like this has a life of its own. And it like, it's becoming a thing. And it's not just me pushing out there, but it's like, it's like people are talking about it It's spreading of its own accord. And it's also, it's like a really beautiful intersection of the skills that I think I've acquired in terms of learning how to communicate and teach from my time teaching, learning how to actually like build the course and use different no-code tools to kind of create the, the structure and the, like the, the, the economic model behind it. Um, and it's also bringing in the I think unique skill set I have around the nervous system and modalities that really help to really help people, honestly. Um, and it's been getting the, the conversations I've had with previous students have been amazing. You know, they, they say that even like a year later, it's still um, deepening like some of the, the, the tools they're using. So. And it's, and it's, you know, generating more than enough money to sustain this lifestyle here in Boulder and to pay for our coffee food and things like that. So it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, that, that, That's absolutely great. And I, um, uh, Rick, the person that introduced me to you, we also suggested the pathless path. I think this person uh, worked with McKinsey, like like me, and I checked out his, his profile. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I... Um, I like that anyone that has worked with McKinsey at the end, even if they walk a pathless path, they, they will know how to sell that, you know, or how to offer <laughs> that to the world. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, I think you'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it was funny when I saw that. So yeah, you're still consultant, but but I it kind of resonated with me the pathless path because that's also I feel I'm on that path, but I never really had a word for it so that kind of resonated with me but if someone is listening to your story to our conversation and they feel they're a bit in transition maybe because of grief or they lost their job or they want to i don't know change geography you never know what the reason is and they enter this new terrain and um, in the beginning maybe they don't know what they're doing what are some of your recommendations for that period of not really knowing and being in that field mm. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually just reading at the end of Paul's book, he has like 10 experiments for people just starting out on the path as path. Um, and they're very good. So I'd recommend, I'd recommend getting a copy of Paul's book. But my uh -huh. recommendations would be um, find, like make at least one friend who's in a similar place to you. And, and ideally find a community of people who are navigating this journey. Because I think in the beginning, it can be very scary and potentially very lonely if a lot of your connections are in the like default path world. Um, I would say, I actually just read about this on Twitter today, like stay within your, your window of tolerance. 
So, so be, be courageous, but not reckless. And what that means is, is like being on your edge of what's comfortable, but don't, you know, don't like quit your job if you've only got like a month's runway, like kind of stagger yourself generally. So maybe it's like working part-time for a while and doing experiments on the side. And I, I, it's really having that experiment-based mindset and seeing both what else is out there. And I think, you know, I think it just takes time, honestly. Um, and then also traveling is great for getting a, a new perspective and like getting out of that, like the echo chamber, getting out of the bubble, getting new perspectives, trying things on um and giving yourself as much time as you can i mean it, mm-hmm. i i know like a, a lot of people are able to take sabbaticals with their you know with their work and still be offered a job on the other side and it blows my mind that people don't do that because <laughs> it's like you 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 only have stuff to, to you don't have anything to lose basically like you, you yeah. can learn about yourself you'll find out new perspectives um yeah and then i would also add yeah follow your follow your fucking curiosity (laughs) follow the aliveness like follow what is um what is alive in you and chances are you'll probably have already had like whispers or inklings of things maybe it's like a course the thing you want to learn about a a startup idea that you might want to try um just do it in a way that it's like bounded in in some sense so you've like defined an endpoint, and then give it a shot I like the the part about follow your curiosity, but also really taking the time. Because sometimes I meet people that take time off, but then they take two months off. Whereas, I mean, why only two months if you if you can take more? Mm-hmm. And during my sabbatical, I, online I, I followed someone. Uh, he's the founder of the sabbatical project, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a former startup founder that got like a burnout. Then he took a sabbatical. Then he got so passionate about sabbaticals that he started the sabbatical project. And there you can find inspiration about uh, sabbaticals. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah so these great recommendations and um, in the soul kitchen um, I always ask people like what their recipe is for life or their their recipe that they uh, want to share uh, with the listener so Mm. what would be your recipe Mm. my recipe for life I would say living life through the eyes of wonder and with the energy of courageous curiosity wonder and courageous curiosity i think that's a beautiful uh beautiful recipe and um i think it sounds easier sometimes than um i know you have a few minutes left it sounds easier sometimes than really it is impractical and I feel people sometimes have fears around money, for instance. Like, oh, I'm curious about this, but what happens to money? And um, maybe there are some other fears. So do you also have a bit of a nugget of wisdom for how people can deal with curiosities? Yeah, there's, there's, there's two ways. You can either do a lot of breathing practices. <laughs> you can regulate your nervous system. Uh, or, or you can really feel the fears. Like, allow yourself to feel the sensations associated with fear and just like welcome it in and, and often people are um people confuse resisting the fear with the fear itself this is the same with any emotion but actually like allowing yourself to feel the energy of what's there 
um, often allows it to pass and to kind of integrate in your system. Um, so don't resist fear or any other feelings that might arise as yeah. part of this path. So it's more feeling through it, breathing through it, instead of like resisting it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's beautiful advice. It's kind of, okay, this is my curiosity. I want to follow it. This is my fears and you feel through it. Mm -hmm. um, and, then and, and, can... and Yeah, and just to add one more thing, like the fact that like fear is arising is a it's a fucking beautiful signpost that you're like on the right path. It's like the path that you choose that is yours is the one that will bring up your edges and your challenges and your shadows. And it's like intimate relationships and work are two beautiful vehicles for surfacing our own shit so that we get to integrate and welcome it. I love it. Mm. <laughs> and I want to connect back to a point you made around community find people that are on a similar path. Now I'm meeting you. You've talked to the person of the pathless path. I also checked it out. So there seems to be a bit of a scene of people that are active in this field. Is there actually a community that you are part of with people that follow the pathless path? Or is it mm. so pathless that is, that is way more informal? <laughs> yeah, it's, it has. I think it has been informal for the last four or five years, I think that there are communities forming. Um, there's a bunch of people on Twitter, which is where I you know, made most of my friends in this world. Paul actually started a community called Find the Others, which has okay. a lot of us in it. I think there's about you know 200 plus people there now um, where yeah, we're wow. just sh sharing anecdotes and you know questions and helping each other out. There's, there's meetups and events and things. But I think you can find that from his either his Twitter profile or certainly on his website. Um, so that's one that I yeah. definitely recommend. Um, I also love, I'd give a shout out to the Art of Accomplishment podcast and the courses that they run. I've, I've mm -hmm. met quite a few friends through participating in, in those courses as well. Mm -hmm. Find the others. I'll definitely uh, check it out. Then maybe my, my last question, you're a podcast host, I'm a podcast host. Do you have some advice for me uh, going forward? Something that I can learn from, that I can take into account? Just keep enjoying yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way you can fail is if you quit, and you'll probably only quit if you stop enjoying it. So keep enjoying it. <laughs> That's great, man. I really like it. I will uh, take that advice with me. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, if people have been listening and they actually want to work with you, I assume they can sign up for your program. I always like to connect people. So what's mm. what's kind of the upcoming, uh, your upcoming agenda? My agenda? <laughs> well, upcoming um, things? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people can uh, find me on Twitter. I'm Johnny Miller, and that's M1LLER. And then the, the Nervous System Mastery course is nsmastery.com. And you can find all the details and, and curriculum on the website. Um, yeah, that would be the best place to, to reach out. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And uh, everyone, thank you for, for listening. And hope to see you soon on the next uh, episode. Thanks so much.